Welcome to Confluence Investment Management Podcast. We are broadcasting from our offices in beautiful downtown Webster Groves. I'm Kaiser Stuckey, investment strategist, and I'm joined today by one of my favorite people, Bill O'Grady, our chief market strategist. As is the tradition over at Confluence, the last geopolitical report that we do for the year, we look into the following year and the geopolitical trends um, in that year. We recently published our 2016 geopolitical outlook, which covers issues that are likely to dominate the international markets. There are five issues. We will cover two of them in this podcast. We will be talking about the election transition in the U.S. and the rise of Western populism. Let's get started on the election transition. Bill, it seems that the U.S. foreign policy has been adrift since the end of the Cold War. Why don't you tell us more about it? Well, that's our take on it. Uh, If you look at the period of the Cold War, every administration, regardless of political leaning, had to deal with the Soviet Union. Uh, They were a consistent uh, mortal enemy of the United States. Uh, They represented a a, a system that that America opposed. And so uh, it it acted as a guidepost for for every new government. Regardless of of where the government leaned, they had to, to deal with whoever was running the Soviet Union. After the Soviet Union fell in the early 90s, Governments that have, have followed it, administrations that have followed it, uh, have been freed of that responsibility, which is, is in one respect a great outcome. But on the other hand, uh, because they have been freed of that responsibility, they also don't have any consistent uh, uh, task that they are that they have to, to deal with. And so um, it has meant that virtually every new government comes in, and creates a, a new mandate or, or a, uh, a new doctrine. And the, the shifts have vacillated greatly between administrations. Uh, that means that unlike the elections that occurred during the Cold War, every new uh, administration has the potential of a striking shift in, in foreign policy. Great. So what do you think it means for the 2016 presidential elections? Well, one of the things that you are seeing, especially on the Republican side, but even uh, among Democrats, is is a running against the current president's foreign policy. Now, part of the reason that you do that is, number one, it differentiates yourself uh, from the current administration. But the other thing is you never know the contraexample. Um, we may not be happy with how the president is operating policy in the Far East or in the Middle East, but we don't know what would happen if you did the opposite. And uh, But regardless, if, if you're the head of a foreign government, everything you are hearing on the campaign trail tells you that whatever foreign policy you are seeing now after March of, of 2017, you're probably not going to see that policy anymore. So if you are an enemy of the United States, if, if you are trying to gain uh, you know, 
geopolitical power, whether you're China or Russia or Iran or North Korea, the clock is running for you. Your window of opportunity is closing. Uh, when the elections are held in early November of next year, uh, more than likely you are uh, going to face a president that's going to oppose you. And so uh, you have to get what you want done uh, completed. On the other hand, if you are really pining for a different, uh, stronger foreign policy, you are the Philippines, you are Japan, uh, you are Saudi Arabia, you are looking forward to a new administration with the hopes that you will have a, a government that will be more attuned to your goals and aspirations, and thus you are clicking off every day trying to fend off the challenges that you're seeing with the hopes that when the new administration comes in, you will get more support for your goals. But either way, it sounds like geopolitical tensions would escalate in the year. Very much so. So, again, to if you're Iran and, and you want to in, increase your influence, let's say, in what used to be Iraq, uh, you want to you want to move quickly. Uh, if you're Russia in Europe, you're facing exactly the same thing. And uh, that means that tensions were, will likely rise uh, as the year progresses. Yeah, this is the year. So let's turn to Western populism. We have seen populism become really a big issue in the presidential campaign in the U.S. Turning to Europe, you've seen several parties in numerous countries turn to populism. The middle class seems to be revolting. Um, Tell us a little bit about the roots of populism. Well, populism has a, a long history. Uh, it usually is uh, the goals and aspirations of what is in the United States called the common man. Uh, it's the working class. It's the middle class. Uh, what makes this issue potent is that in the late 70s, in response to uh persistently high inflation across the OECD countries. Uh, countries virtually across that spectrum all adopted uh, policies of globalization and deregulation. In other words, they opened themselves up to trade and they allowed the rapid introduction of new technology. And, and it was extraordinarily successful in bringing down inflation. Inflation fell rapidly and has remained low uh, in the 35 years, 36 years since. The drawback is that uh, it did that through efficiency, and one family's efficiency, efficiency gains is another family's job loss and income loss. And so the, the, the households that have not prospered uh, under these policies have, have started to, to rebel. And we're seeing that especially in the United States uh, and, and in Europe, too. Right. The common man has lost out on that, the, that is, the games. Yeah, and, and, and so when I talk about this, one of the things I, I point out is that uh, in the United States, the very fact that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are even in the conversation tells you that something has changed. and and that establishment candidates are desperately trying to prove that they're not establishment. Uh, 
in Europe, uh, we saw the rise of, of several populist parties, Podemos in Spain, uh, Syriza in Greece, uh, the National Front in, in France, and the Independence Party in, in the UK. All these are indicative of, uh, of political groupings that want to reverse this policy. They want to uh, deglobalize uh, the the economy. They tend to oppose trade, and they want to re-regulate the economy to slow down the introduction of, of new technology uh, to basically try to preserve jobs. Yeah. So the two common threads between all these parties is the populist parties are nationalistic, and they are anti-immigrant. In um, and the recent influx of refugees into Europe has really energized the European populist movement. Yes, it has, uh, and and so is the nationalism uh, within Europe. One of the unique characteristics there has been the creation of the European Union, which started in the late fifties. Really, as as their ultimate goal was to prevent another world war from being fought in Europe. But to do that, what they have done is tried to economically unify the continent uh, to assume the, the national sovereignty of uh, many areas of European life. And uh, kind of the culmination of that was the creation of the Euro and the Eurozone. Well, Virtually all the uh, nationalistic parties in Europe, the populist parties, are either opposed to austerity uh, that the Germans and the EU have imposed on many countries, or they want to exit the euro altogether. Uh, Le Pen in France with the National Front has been, been pressing for that. So that's how it's getting expressed in Europe. In, in the United States, uh, it's, it's anti-immigration, but it's also anti-trade. Uh, that's especially true of left-wing populists, but when Donald Trump says that when he negotiates a trade deal, it'll be a much better deal, what he's really signaling is that we're being taken on these trade deals, which, which is actually not, we don't believe that's the case. Uh, we think it's much deeper than that. But the ultimate outcome is that if you're a, a semi-skilled worker facing foreign competition, in, in, in the West, your costs are higher and you, you will lose. Now, let's say if these parties do succeed in even getting a step closer to their goals, they want to de, uh, they want to deglobalize, they want to regulate, and they want to stop immigration or at least slow down immigration. That all leads to inflation. It, it does. Uh, one of the things that, kind of the way to think about this is that the way we understand, the way human beings understand things is through narratives. Uh, this is why Jesus spoke in parables. And the narrative, the dominant narrative of disinflation in the West has been laid at the feet of the central banks, with the Paul Volcker and, and the guys in Europe and the Bundesbank. These were the guys that really slayed inflation. We understand the narrative. We think the narrative is wrong. Uh, that the, the the real reason why we have seen persistently low inflation has less to do with central bank policy and a lot more to do with supply side policy, and because that's the case, uh, we, we have uh, 
we now have this this situation where people believe that the central banks can actually cause inflation. So, for example, when we saw QE come out, people were like, oh my gosh, we're going to have hyperinflation. In fact, we haven't seen anything resembling it because we are still open to trade and, and we still allow the rapid introduction of new technology. If the populace win, uh, we will see a reversal of those policies and inflation comes back. What does that mean for investors? Uh, it means that that long-awaited rise in long-term sovereign interest rates uh, finally happens. And it also means that high PEs go away. And so uh, one of the things our colleague Mark Keller always likes to say is that if your portfolio could talk, uh, it would tell you that you really want to vote for the establishment. That is true, Aldo. As we can tell by the uh, support of the populist movement, many people don't emotionally believe that. That is correct. So, Okay, well, that was the two first issues of the five that are likely to affect the geopolitical landscape in 2016, the election transition and the rise of Western populism. We will cover the small-scale IS, the Islamic State, the weakening of the EU, and the trouble in the South China Sea in our next podcast. Thank you for listening, and Avita Zen.